Today's episode is brought to you by the new Yelp for Restaurants. In July 2020, hundreds of hospitality professionals and enthusiasts at Yelp banded together to create a new team dedicated entirely to the betterment of restaurants. Check out our latest project together, the Restaurant Marketing School podcast at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash marketing school or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here we go. You find yourself getting caught up in the same conversation day in and day out. And it sort of feels a bit like a big complain fest. So what we said was, let's just try and figure out solutions. And what I was really impressed with was it sparked this entrepreneurial thinking from the whole team. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Who's the most important person in your restaurant? On a busy Saturday night, it's the dishwasher. Because if the dishwasher doesn't show up, you're the dishwasher. To make his job easier and our operation more efficient, we've upgraded to Dawn Professional Pot and Pan. Dawn Professional cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink, using less soap and resulting in fewer changeovers. Save time and money with Dawn Professional. It's clean, upgraded. As an industry, we can look at the pandemic as a blessing or as a curse. And no matter which one you choose, you'll be right. Celebrity chef Curtis Stone is choosing to view the pandemic as an opportunity to improve. Today, we run through the operational improvements he's made and the impact they've had on his restaurants. It all sort of, like most things in my life, kind of happened a little by accident, to be honest. I always loved food and cooking and My dream was always to work in the best restaurants, and I guess I sort of started doing that pretty young. I moved to London when I was 20 or 21 and worked for Marco Pierre White for a bunch of time, and somehow during that process ended up being involved in a cookbook, and from that, we're asked to do a little publicity, and that sort of turned into a TV appearance, and that just kind of kept going. So, yeah, no, it wasn't something I was sort of thought of, to be honest. But did you see the value in capitalizing on it? Yeah, look, if I'm being honest, I was torn with it because there was a part of a celebrity chef that I really didn't like or associate myself with. I actually remember going to a thing called the the Good Food and Wine Show in Birmingham, and it was where these celebrity chefs would get up and do appearances or cooking demonstrations or whatever. And I got asked to go down there with Marco and his team. And at the end of the first day, I remember going into the bar in the Hilton, stinky old hotel, and there was... All the celebrity chefs on one side of the bar and there was Gordon Ramsay and Marco and a guy named Gary Rhodes and the real chefs kind of sitting over in a little corner. And I was very proud to only know those guys. And I walked over and I was like, you know, I had worked with those guys and sort of I can remember thinking to myself, God, I'd never want to be over there. (laughs) Um, And so I was pretty torn with it, to be honest. But of course, there's advantages with doing TV and books and that stuff too. It pays better than the restaurant business, that's for sure, and it also raises your profile and maybe gives you a bit more of an opportunity to do the things you know and love. And so, yeah, anyway, you justify getting into it however you justify it, and then once you're in it, you're in it. There's no sort of turning back. It's also a great opportunity because you're able to build your audience. For most of us, we end up in a situation where our entire audience is whoever's sitting in the restaurant in that moment, and that's our platform for sharing our message with the world, whatever that dream or vision 
is, but you're able to expand so far outside of your restaurant to talk about your values and how you express that through the culinary industry. That's really interesting because I think the beauty of doing stuff outside of a restaurant is you can get people to your restaurant. But one thing I do know is the only way you get them to come back to your restaurant is if you're really good, if your food's really tasty or the service over exceeds or it's a pleasant atmosphere or a combination of all that stuff. But it is a gift to be able to spread the word, so to speak. It's sort of uh, turbocharged word of mouth because word of mouth is still the most important part of any business, at least in my opinion it is. And I think with a bigger voice, of course, you can talk to more people, but trying to get someone to come and spend their hard-earned money on something that's not great, it's just never going to happen. So you've got to stand behind your product, and that's sort of something we've always believed in. Now, do you think that that's a message? I interviewed Jeremiah Tower. His whole thing was, there's no point in being a celebrity chef if you're not a great chef. Do you feel like in the younger kids that you see coming out of culinary school, that that's the big missed opportunity, that they're not focused on excellence in the trade? Yeah, I do. It's a fascinating question. Like We all want things so quickly these days. We want it instantly. We all come out of culinary school and you see all these kids, they all want to be a sous chef within a year. And if I think back to my upbringing in the culinary business, it was a real privilege when you got to call yourself a chef de party because you went from being a demi-chef to a chef de party that you're like, I'm in charge of a section of the restaurant. You're still a mile from being a sous chef because once you're a chef de party of one station, then you want to sort of get to the you start on garbage probably when you're a first chef to party and then you want to go on the fish station and then eventually you want to be the chef to party on the sauce station which holds all the cred and then once you've done all of those stations you could become a torno where you can work multiple stations and once you've done that then god you could become a sous chef and that was something really to behold and now of course yeah sometimes i look at resumes that get sent to me and they're 23 years old and they've worked in one spot And their starting position was a sous chef. And I'm like, that's not how it works. And by the way, if you did become a sous chef straight away, you missed out on all these trainings, all this stuff that you need to be great. So it's a shame that we want this instant gratification with everything because sometimes that process, it feels so good when you get to the end of it. It's like trying to run a marathon, but taking the shortcut. It doesn't feel the same. Now, let's talk about chef culture because it's certainly evolved and changed at least over the last decade that I've seen in a way that it's still very militaristic, but there's less rigor, right? Like it's less gruff than it once was. And there are fewer pots and pans being thrown. Do you see this as a natural evolution and as a positive evolution in the industry? No, look, I think there's room for both. That's the truth. If you want to work in a gruff environment where it's very straight to the point and it's very competitive and, I think you should be allowed to. I don't think that should be taken away. It was what I was always attracted to. I went to work for one of the craziest chefs because he was crazy, because of his reputation. I always used to think of it like if you wanted to go and play for a football team, maybe that coach would be really tough on you and maybe he would or she would push you to a point that you felt like giving up, but you got back up and you kept on going. And I don't know why we can't have that. So... That said, it was very male-dominated. There was a lot of bad things about that culture too, which I think have been changed, and I think that's a good thing that they've been changed because why shouldn't all sorts of people be allowed to cook in a kitchen? They should. 
we all have different skills and some people are incredible multitaskers. Some people are really important critical thinkers. Some people are just tough and they can get through a really tough service on a really hot station all night long. So we've all got different skills and I think they should all be celebrated. But I don't think we should turn into this nanny state where all this stuff is totally not allowed because, I mean, I've got a lot out of that sort of environment. I think a lot of people would. What I found most interesting about the pandemic is that regardless of professional success today, we all kind of found ourselves swimming in the same toilet around May of 2020. And we all tried a bunch of different things. And I know Maud became the marketplace and you also did a pop-up at the Grove called Picnic Society. What did you learn from those experiences? I think early on in the moment, there was just a lot of conversation. Like everyone was talking about, did restaurants need saving? Do we need a government handout? What was our future? We're all sort of standing there scratching our head. And the truth behind a lot of it was there was probably a lot of restaurants that were on the brink of failure anyway. And I think we could probably all put ourselves in that bucket for the most part. You know, I don't know anyone that's like, oh no, we're doing really well. We're full every night. We've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank as a cushion. There's no one really in that space in our industry. So What we decided as a team was to not talk about it and just get on with it because you find yourself getting caught up in the same conversation day in and day out, and it sort of feels a bit like a big complain fest. So what we said was, let's just try and figure out solutions. And what I was really impressed with was it sparked this entrepreneurial thinking from the whole team. I had people coming to me that you wouldn't imagine would be coming up with business plans or ideas, but they'd come and be like, what if we did this? What if we did that? And we laid some people off right at the beginning, and something really affected me on this third or fourth day of after some of those furloughs, and it was a text message I got from one of our choppers. She literally was in the back cutting onions for most of her day, and it's a pretty unrewarding job, but she was really good at it. We just, with less volume, needed less hands and could afford less hands, and she was one of the people that we let go, and she texted me and said, I'm a single mum, and I know why you had to let me go, but I just need work, and I'll do anything. Can you please help me? And it changed everything for me, because I sort of stopped, and I was like, no, we've got to do something different. We've got to continue to try to create opportunities for our team. So whether we make money or not, even if we lose a little, we've still got to try it. So that's sort of why we went to doing all of these different things, because frankly, it would have been a smarter decision financially just to say, stop it. Just everything stops, close down, apply for a PPP, put that money in the bank until we need it one day and we'll reopen when we can safely do so. But we've sort of chosen the other route, which is just grinding through it. And There's success, there's failure. Like it's sort of, it's hard and it's not easy, but we're not here to whinge and complain about it. We're here to get on with it, do the best we can. And when we feel like something's failing really badly, we stop and we pivot again and keep trying to do something different. One of the things that's come up time and time again in these interviews is that people say, I had no idea that I could run such a lean operation. Like one restaurant guy to another. The first time I walked into Gwen, the first thing I thought was, man, it's beautiful. And the second thing I thought was, man, those linens are fucking expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Like I just knew. And so has there been a leaning out process for you? And if so, where have you chosen to make those cuts? For sure. You're absolutely right. And by the way, those linens I took home every night, washed in my washing (laughs) machine because I didn't trust the linen company with them. 
it's like in every aspect. There's certain things that you turn around and you're like, what? Well, hold on, how much do those boxes cost us? We're paying $2 for each box that we put a, a thing of food into. And you sort of become ultra tactical in the decisions that you make, right? Because you have no other choice and you lose a lot of the fluff. That's the first thing to go. We used to have two full-time people that polish glassware every night. And that's all they do is to stand there. They had a steamer and they would polish glassware all night long. And look, we're not even open for restaurant seating at all, but you do have to stop and go, how important was that piece of the process? Look, in a fine dining establishment, the last thing you want is glasses with a streak on it from the dishwasher. But at the same time, you've got to analyze everything down to an inch of its life and try and make things just more, you know, like everyone's become a multitasker more than they ever were. Your dishwashers are peeling potatoes and your front of house guys, like we've all checked our egos at the door. I've got sommeliers that have worked in nothing but Michelin-starred restaurants their entire life. They're now driving a refrigerated van around Brentwood, dropping off food to people. You know, I mean, we've all humbled ourselves in a way because we've had no other choice. And there's something that's nice that comes out of that too, right? That togetherness, that family meal means more than it ever did. Because you even have to stop and go, shit, can we even afford to cook people lunch anymore? Because when you're counting every penny, you've got to look at every penny. And you're like, well, if the staff's dinner costs 100 bucks or 200 bucks to make, then that's someone's job. Do you know what I mean? That's an extra person that we had to lay off that we could bring them back on if we tell everyone they've got to bring their own lunch to work. So you get to this granular way of looking at things, which is probably how you should have been doing it all along. But I'm proud to say we still cook for our staff, but they're all tough decisions. Well, and you take all of these decisions and all of these lessons and you open the pie room by Gwen. Talk to me about that. What was that process like? What was the idea? Why do you believe it's going to thrive? Look, I think there's an element of the slowing down of everything that also allows you to stop and say, well, we doing it right. Is it what I wanted in the first place? And I think what I always wanted for Gwen was for it to be the best butcher shop in LA. And I think we've done that. We source the best meats from all over the world and we treat them with real love and care and we dry age. But the other side of what I always wanted was to do the charcuterie or the dry cure and all the French style terrines and pâté en croûtes and all that stuff. And it's a bit of a skill that's a little lost. Not a lot of people know how to make a lot of that stuff. And effectively, they're all pies or pâtés of some description. So as I was sort of thinking more about the butcher shop, the one thing that I never really got right was the pies i always wanted to make these beautiful terrines and pies and it also means that you run your butcher shop more efficiently because you, you utilize every little scrap of meat and it's all great in a pie and you also utilize all your fat because you have a lot of fat as a byproduct of a butcher shop so we sell it but we have more than we can can sell or use so through making the pies, we use the suet and we use the leaf lard as the fat. So we don't buy in butter. We actually utilize the animal fat, which gives it crazy good flavor. So you get back to the concept of a butcher shop with zero waste was always our, our goal. So then I started making some of these pies and made the braises and the stews and whatever. And Amy, our pastry chef, she's an incredible. She just has this wildly beautiful touch with dough. And she started playing with some of the fats. We made some of these pies. And I was like, we won't be able to keep up in the butcher shop. They're too good. They're going to sell really, really well. So we decided to re-energize the Maud space for a few months at least and just sort of do something with that. So we've come down here to make the pies. And 
that's sort of how we're doing it. My standard joke is I spend all day making dough, but we're not making much dough, but I'm making a lot of dough. <laughs> so it's good fun. You're also working on a television project called Field Trip. Talk to me about that. Well, Field Trip was very organic. It was what we were doing for Maud anyway. We did four or five years of single ingredient menus. So after 40 or 50 of those menus, you kind of get to the point where you're like, I don't know what to do a menu around. I've done asparagus and I've done carrot and I've done pasta. You've done most of it. And it was starting to feel like a bit of a reach. So we sat down as a team and said, well, what should the restaurant evolve into? Because it's got to change. We're a bit bored with it. So I'm sure our customers will be soon too. So let's change it. And then we spoke for a long time about wine and wine pairings and how big a component of the menu the wine pairings had become and how good a job the wine team were doing. So we sort of said, well, what if the wine became the central point of the restaurant? What if it became the focus of the menu? Because for the most part, chefs always create a dish and then tell the sommelier to find a wine that works with it. And we sort of said, what if you started with a wine and then created the dish around it? And as we kicked that idea around a bit more, we said, well, what if the region that the wine comes from becomes the inspiration for the menu. And we said, all right, let's do it. But then, of course, there's no point in just doing it from a textbook and reading about Bordeaux if you haven't been there. You've got, you know, so I said, well, maybe a couple of us could sneak over there for a couple of days, but we'd have to do it on a shoestring. And so that's what we started to do. And it was literally me and maybe the chef and maybe a sommelier or maybe a pastry chef or whatever. We changed it up a little. Some months i'd even say look you guys go i'll sit this one out so we started doing that and it was really fun i know you've got 48 hours in a region to absorb as much as you can and somehow create a 10 course menu to do it justice it ends up just being packed full of meeting with chefs and going to meet suppliers and drinking wine and all this fun stuff and i was telling a buddy of mine who was a cinematographer about how we created the menu and he's like dude that's a tv show why aren't you filming it i was like it would be fun and anyway we shot one as a bit of a pilot and uh, showed it to pbs and they loved it so yeah we've done nearly three seasons of it now it's absolutely incredible and i think it speaks to the idea that it all comes from a really authentic place it's not like the television is recreating reality. It's just highlighting the reality of your life. No, you're absolutely right. It's sort of, to be honest, it's that dream job that you're always, like TV shows come and go, but to do one around what you're truly passionate about, what you truly love, it's a dream. You've mentioned publicly that you have some interest in moving back to Australia and work-life balance is always a struggle in this industry. How has the yeah. pandemic affected you prioritizing your personal life? Look, it's been tough. I think Australia just had a very different position on it from the outset. They were just like, look, people's lives are at risk and we're going to shut down. But when they say that, they did it for real. It was a forced closure in all industries and you weren't allowed to leave your house. They made everyone stay home. And as a result, they got rid of the virus. I mean, I say they got rid of it. They went 80 days without a single case or something like that. They've had a couple of flare-ups because, of course, there's Australians that live abroad that are, have come home and somehow they've, they've brought a little bit of with them. But for the most part, they live without that fear that we're living with at the moment. And it has made me sort of think, are we in the right place? You know, I've got two young kids and here we all are living in this like crazy reality. So and my parents are getting older and oh God, I hope they don't listen. Anyway, you're both young at heart, mum and dad. But then you go through these struggles in your life where you're like, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? 
And yeah, I would like to spend some more time back there. My wife doesn't share my sentiment, but <laughs> that's all <laughs> things, isn't it? You get to debate that. Oh, look, I love LA and I'm happy in the States. But of course, it crosses your mind when something like this comes up. So yeah, it's, it's been the source of many conversations. What does the rest of 2021 look like for you? What are your goals? You know what? I have no idea what the rest of the year looks like. I've released myself from the worry of what it's going to be like, and I'm sort of just living in it and doing everything we can for right now. I'm hopeful that the restaurants reopen, and I'm hopeful that kids can go back to school full-time and we can socialize again. But until we can safely, I just don't know that there's any point guessing about it. I think at the start, we probably were all making decisions based on what we thought was going to happen. And that's probably pretty different than what's eventuated, right? I think if you had asked me in March, do you think we'd be wearing masks and in this crazy time a year later, I would have said, God, no, but here we are. So we might be in it for another year. And I'm sort of just assuming that it's going to keep going for a while and we'll wait and see when we come out of it. But look, I hope to reopen the restaurants, both Maud and Gwen. I want to reopen them both. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, if I'm being truthful. We've lost a lot of money and we don't have a cushion. We don't have a pile of cash that we can just reinvest in the opening of it. But you never know. What I've seen in Australia is a real bounce back. Business got really busy again and that's super cool. But will it continue? I'm just not sure. I'm hopeful that we get some version of the Roaring Twenties back in the restaurant world and, and we can all bounce back from what happened. But we'll have to wait and see. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the restaurant owners and operators listening. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement? I don't know. It feels a little phony to be like, we're all in it together. We'll all make it through because it's not true. What's happened is shit and we're all really struggling. And it's different for everyone. I have two restaurants here in LA and I have one in Dallas and all three of them couldn't be more different. One has a butcher shop. One's a 24-seat dining room. If they told me I could reopen at 50% capacity, it means nothing to me. I can't. I can't open with 12 seats. That's just not a business. I have no outside dining in either of my spaces here in LA. In Dallas, we're busy the whole way through. We have a patio. We have indoor dining open. And The truth is your reality is your reality. You're the only one that really knows it. And I feel like What's right for me is to not give up, to keep pushing and to keep fighting, but that might not be right for someone else. So I really think you've just got to be true to who you are and true to what's right for you and your team and do the very best you can. But we're all just sitting around waiting and wondering what's going to happen. I wish that we got more assistance. I wish that things were lighter and easier, but they're not. They suck. And you've just got to kind of keep doing what's right for you and lean on each other. I know that I'm talking to all of my buddies in the restaurant business more than ever and sharing ideas. Something else works for somebody else and they tell me about it. I'll give it a shot. I think as a community, this could divide us or it could really connect us. And I think it's connecting us more than ever. And that's a good thing. But yeah, like hang in there. It's brutal. That's Chef Curtis Stone. For more on The Chef, visit curtisstone.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. 
A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.